I want to speak tonight about the four qualities that together are known as the Brahma Viharas. The qualities are metta or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The word Brahma means uh, celestial or heavenly or supreme. One translation I've heard of it that I liked a lot is the word best. Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities can make up our best home. The Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah, had this to say. He said, when we have no real home, we are like aimless travelers out on the road, going this way for a while, then that way. Until we return to our real home, we feel Ill, Ill at ease, whatever we are doing. The Brahmaviharas form our best home, and we know that sense of being at home, where we don't have to pretend to be somebody else. We can actually be ourselves. We're not living out the expectations or projections of another. We feel safe, we feel comfortable, we feel at ease, we feel complete, we feel at home. <clears throat> And these four qualities also support each other. They have all kinds of balancing relationships with one another, together making up our best home. The first of these is the quality of metta. It's loving kindness or love or friendship. And as we've been saying, loving kindness, I think, can may be best be understood as a view or vision of life. It has to do with how we pay attention. One of my friends once told me about a time he went, when we were living in India, up to Sikkim to see the very eminent, great Tibetan Lama, the Karmapa. That was his title. That was the 16th Karmapa. The 17th Karmapa was in the news uh, a few years ago because... As a 14-year-old boy, he escaped Tibet over the Himalayas into India. But this was the predecessor, the 16th Karmapa, who was, who was very eminent, very renowned. And my friend said that when he went there, the Karmapa related to him as though his appearance were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life, which, believe me, it was not, <laughs> most likely. And he said that the Karmapa did that, he displayed that, not through great pomp and circumstance or, or grand gestures, you know, great flourishes. He conveyed that impression by paying absolute, complete attention to him. So that, as my friend described it, he said the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. And as soon as he told me that, I felt rather chagrined. I thought, how many conversations do I have where I'm kind of there, and I'm kind of thinking of the next person I need to talk to, or the phone call I need to make, or the errand I need to run. And I realized it wouldn't take that much, actually, to be undistracted, to be more fully present in that encounter, just as it was in that moment. And therein is the gift of love. It doesn't have to be very fancy. It means a complete, wholehearted attention. Once I was leading a retreat in, in Barry at IMS, and at night I had a dream that I was leading a retreat at IMS, <laughs> which wasn't the exciting part of the dream, but in the, in the course of the dream I was having an interview with somebody, and they said to me, why do we love people? And in the dream I responded, because they recognize us. And when I woke up, I thought, that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) There's something we we long for so much to be recognized, to be seen. Not, you know, in a, a pretentious way, but in a deeper way. As somebody worthy of being present for, somebody worthy of of being cared for. So this is the the medium of metta. It's recognition, it's a wholehearted attention. We pay attention in metta in ways different than we might have ordinarily. 
They say that the, the proximate cause or the nearest arising condition, the force of mind which allows metta to most easily arise, is seeing the good in someone. And that means beginning with ourselves. To actually turn the mind toward the good in someone, even if it's one little sliver of behavior in the midst of a great deal of negativity. And this is meant not to have us be lost in delusion and confusion and pretending, oh, everything's fine, it's no problem, just do it again, I don't care. But rather, it's based on the understanding that if we fixate, if we obsess on the negativity, we will naturally retreat or withdraw. We will be afraid, we'll be angry. If we focus on one good aspect of someone, then there will be a sense of connection. It will be like a bridge has been built. And from that vantage point of connection rather than separation, we can honestly and directly look at all of the difficulty. But it's without that sense of complete distance. When I was practicing in Burma, I was, of course, given this instruction. And my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look for the good in someone. And I thought, that's what stupid people do. You know, they just kind of go around looking for the good in everybody. And I thought, I don't even like people like that. You know, they're just, they're just so silly. They're going around looking for the good in everyone. But as I usually tell the story, as is true, I was far from home in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something, and you say, I don't feel like it, <laughs> you know, or I don't think it's a good idea. You do it. And so I did it. And much to my amazement, it actually worked. It worked in the way it was described to work, not that I entered this, this sort of ridiculous realm of, of make-believe, but in many instances, instead of holding this really tight image of somebody as all bad, as though that were true, if I just turn my mind to remember one good thing, then there was some sense of connection, which didn't deny or obviate the actual negative, to look for the good. And sometimes that doesn't happen. It's so unreal, whether it's looking at ourselves on a particularly bad day or looking at somebody else, it's not going to happen. In which case, there's another reflection that we do, which has to do with how we pay attention. And this is a remembrance that all beings everywhere want to be happy. This is like the bottom line truth of our lives, that everybody just wants to be happy. It's because of the force of ignorance that we and others make the terrible mistakes we sometimes make that cause so much suffering for ourselves and so much suffering for others, but really everybody just wants to be happy. That urge toward happiness is not something to feel squeamish about or uneasy about. In some ways, it's the most beautiful thing about us. The problem is not wanting to be happy. The problem is not knowing how. It's the ignorance. And if we could nurture that urge toward happiness and combine it with wisdom, with understanding, then it becomes like our homing instinct for freedom. Then we can cut through many, many obstacles because, in fact, we realize we deserve to be happy and everybody deserves to be happy. Metta is paying attention. It's recognizing that truth and recognizing it not just for the select few that we happen to feel close to or aligned in a personal relationship with, but feeling it for everybody, knowing that we're not so different. We all want to be happy. We're all vulnerable to changing circumstance, to pain, to sorrow, to loss. The fragility of life is the same for everybody. Tomorrow, as we go on in the metta instruction, we'll move on to the the category that really is my favorite way of doing metta, which is metta for the neutral person. A neutral person is somebody we don't strikingly like or strikingly dislike. We find them kind of neutral. Sometimes when we get to that point 
in the practice and people try to think of somebody who is neutral for them, they discover that there aren't really very many neutral people, that as soon as they meet somebody or even hear they exist, they form a judgment about them. You know, they like them or they don't like them. And sometimes the opposite is true. Very often the opposite is true. We might realize there are many, many beings that appear in our lives one way or another. Perhaps they play a certain role or function in our life. And for all we take the time to realize they want to be happy just as we, they might as well be pieces of furniture. They're like objects to us. It's very shocking. When we pay attention to somebody instead of overlook them or look through them, then the innate connection that is the genuine truth of things reveals itself. So it's not a contrivance and it's not something, you know, self-conscious, like I really don't like you, but I better, you know, try to send you metta, or I don't care about you, but here I am after all. Just naturally, spontaneously, because we're paying attention, finally, the genuine connection comes forth. And here are some of the most charming stories, really, about doing metta practice that come from this phase of the practice. Very often we suggest that you try to find a neutral person amongst other people in the retreat, if you still feel neutral about anybody here. <laughs> and many times, in especially like the long retreat in Barry, the three-month course, where people might be doing very extensive periods of metta practice, people will say to me day after day, I don't feel anything for my neutral person. It's so boring. You know, there's no, there's no juice. There's nothing compelling about it. I'm not doing it right. I can't do it. And day after day after day. And then one day I'll get a note that says, my neutral person didn't show up at breakfast. Could you please go to the room and make sure they're okay? <laughs> And I'll think, you know, the poor person is probably asleep. The last thing they want is me to come to their room, you know, <laughs> figure out why they're not at breakfast. You know, but that sense of care is very strong. My favorite story about that is once I was teaching in Barry in February, I met to retreat, and a friend of mine sat, and I didn't see her again for about six months when I was teaching a, another retreat in New Mexico. And she came up to me in New Mexico, and she was all kind of, of beaming, and she said to me, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. <laughs> and I said, really, that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and she said, no, no, not romantically, but way back in that retreat in Barry, he was my neutral person. <laughs> and she said, now every day when I meditate, I hold him in my heart and I wish him well. She said, I go into the store now and I really want to see how he's doing. <laughs> it means something to me. You know, and this is strictly a function of attention. It's not because she is so indebted to him, you know, from some great good deed that she feels, well, she, she's obliged to, to wish him well. And it's not because she learned his story, you know, the particular sorrows or troubles of his life, so that she was moved to send him metta. It's not because he'd hurt her so badly that she felt that this person defines the edge for her you know, the place that she really needs to go to be free. It was just because she paid attention to him every day. She remembered him. That's the function of, of attention, which is really the power of love, of care. And as we do the practice, it's extended throughout all beings. In a lot of ways, these categories are kind of artificial. They're a way of unfolding the practice. But people often say, well, you know, I was focusing on my benefactor and, and I felt all of this great friendship and love for them. And then I remembered the time they said that really nasty thing, you know, and, and suddenly they weren't my benefactor anymore. They were my difficult person. And, <laughs> you know, and it's true that relationships are very intricate. Life is very complex. I once said to somebody, I had a fantasy of teaching a meta retreat where we just chose one person as the object and the parts of them we admired and were grateful for, they were like our benefactor. The parts of them we felt at ease with, they were like our friend. 
The parts of them we didn't know, they were like our neutral person. The parts of them that we had difficulty with, they were like our difficult person. And the person I was speaking to said, well, you know you can just choose yourself because we play all of those roles to ourselves and for ourselves. It's true. The practice of metta is about continually expanding. It's a practice of inclusion. All aspects of ourselves, all beings. We do that because that is actually the truth of how things are. Our friend Bob Thurman, who uh, some of you may know his work, he's a a Buddhist scholar and professor at Columbia. He gave an example once of a very, it's a very New York City example. He said, it's a very Bob example too. (laughs) He said, imagine you're on a subway car and this group of Martians come and they zap the subway car. So you and those beings in the car are going to be together forever. (laughs) Absolutely eternally. And he said, what do you do? You know, somebody freaks out, you try to calm them down. Somebody's hungry, you feed them. We take care of each other because, like it or not, we are stuck together forever. And this, strange to say, is the truth of things. We live not separate and not apart, but completely embedded in a web of interconnection. What we do matters, what we care about matters. It ripples out through all of these threads, seen and unseen, in a great landscape of connection. That is the the power of metta, is that it's based on that truth. It's based on that understanding. And so we practice, not for the sake of sentimentality, but to live a life of integrity that honors that very powerful truth. That's actually how things are. One of my uh, heroines is, is this woman, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, who said at one point, after having been under house arrest for about six years, after not being able to raise her children in the course of that time, being separated from her husband in the course of that time, having suffered uh, many deprivations because she wouldn't take any funds from the military dictatorship in Burma. After all of that, she said something once like, It's proven especially important for my colleagues in the democracy movement and I to practice metta because we have seen the consequences of natures that are lacking in metta. We have seen the result of people dehumanizing others, living in a world of us and them, of separation. When we see the result, which we can see very easily all around us, it can inspire us even more to live in a way that does not perpetuate that kind of delusion. To recognize that we are all a part of a greater whole and we need to be responsive to that. That's the power of metta. The second of the Brahma-viharas is that of compassion, which is the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. That's the literal translation of the word. It's the quivering or the the, um, trembling of the heart when we see pain or suffering. The state of compassion is also a state with all of its tenderness And all of its openness, it's also a state of some strength. The strength comes from recognizing the oneness of beings. That we're not apart and we're not alone. Once Joseph and I went to Russia to teach, and this was a long time ago, it was the Soviet Union actually at the time, and 
we were teaching surreptitiously. We were ostensibly on this tour group, but we never went anywhere <laughs> except to people's living rooms. Uh, every afternoon we would go and teach, and uh, we'd have a translator, of course, and, and I was speaking a lot about compassion, and I noticed every time I spoke about compassion, I would sense a really funny feeling in the room. So finally I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And she went into a very kind of florid description of, oh, you know, I talk about the state of unbearable pain and, you know, how uh, your heart is just broken and you're completely destroyed by the suffering. And she said, it's like someone has taken a, a giant stake and driven it into your heart. And, and I thought, well, no wonder. And I feel this really funny feeling. But we can have that sense too. It's not that one doesn't feel sorrow in compassion, because how could we not? And it's not that one doesn't feel pain with the pain of others, but once we are broken by it, we have nothing left to give. Then our own pain, our own guilt, our own grief, whatever it is, has taken center stage. And we don't have the energy, we don't have the strength to actually try to be of help, to be of service. And so it's very delicate, a question, really understanding what compassion is, that can be of benefit to others. A few years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City and gave a few days of teachings in a theater. Some of you maybe were there, actually. Um, And then on the last day there, he gave a public talk in Central Park. And it was a a beautiful event that uh, a good friend of ours organized, actually. And I remember in all the lead-up to it, her main desire was that many people and all kinds of people show up at the park to hear this teaching, which was free and, and available to everybody. And so um, those of you who are in New York City at the time might remember um, whenever you got off of a subway, at the subway station, you see a poster of the Dalai Lama and an announcement about Central Park. And the day before Central Park came, it poured rain. It just rained and rained and rained. And we all wondered, well, What's it going to be like tomorrow? How many people might be there? And we got up the next day, went to Central Park, and couldn't see anything as we entered the park. And yet we could hear the sound of Tibetan monks chanting in the distance, so we just followed the sound as we went in. And then I remember turning a corner, and there was an ocean of people. There was just everywhere the eye could land, there were people. And they kept streaming into the park and streaming into the park. The official park estimates of that day were 40,000 people. But the um, State Department, which had provided security for His Holiness, told our friend that they were estimating 250,000 people, which is really what it looked like. There's just this vast number of people. We all sat in a what I found to be a very special kind of quiet, waiting for him to speak. And when he finally spoke, he began with a statement I found quite startling. He began by saying, you know, from a certain point of view, it hasn't been such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s every day. I've had to work to try to keep intact a refugee community every day. I've had to hear the uh, tremendous difficulty, torture, death that people have been undergoing in Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) And of course, that's what one sees when one sees him. He's pretty happy. He then went on to say, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of compassion. He said, the sense of compassion, cultivating the sense of compassion, makes me feel at one with others. And so that's the the strength. It's not a brittle strength, but it's the strength of openness, of connection, 
that's what infuses the compassion. And that's what helps us be happy. And it was very striking because there in that crowd of, let's say, 250,000 people, I bet a lot of people might have said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And not so very many of us might have said, but I'm pretty happy. So that's the, the potential of compassion, to see suffering instead of turning the other way, to recognize it, to name it for what it is, to be present, to be caring, and not to be destroyed by that. That actually is the, it's the very nature of compassion. The third of the Brahma Viharas is the quality of sympathetic joy, which means being able to take delight and the delight of others. You all are probably recognizing your dorms by now. <laughs> um, uh, sympathetic joy is a state where when we hear about somebody's or we see somebody's success or good fortune, rather than falling sway to that voice which so readily arises inside saying, you know, I would be happier if you had just a little bit less going for you right now, you know. (laughs) It's like you don't have to lose everything, but, you know, if you could just like, if the light could just dim a little bit, I would feel better. That's the usual response. It's very conditioned. Sympathetic joy is actively taking delight in the happiness of others rather than falling sway to that very common voice. That voice is born out of a sense, usually, that happiness is like a limited commodity in this universe, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. So if someone else takes any out of that stockpile, we're really in trouble because we're threatened by that. Sympathetic joy, in contrast, recognizes that someone else's happiness doesn't diminish our own happiness. In fact, it can enhance our own happiness. It can be our own happiness. And here again, the Dalai Lama said something quite wonderful. He said, it only makes sense to practice happiness in the happiness of others. Because then you enhance your own chance for happiness six billion to one. And he said, those are very good odds. And I thought, boy, you know, isn't that true? It's like you don't even have to leave home, you know, and go out and try to be happy. You could just stay home, think about someone else's happiness, be filled with happiness, and you're fine, you know, it's great. Of all of these qualities, it's sometimes said that sympathetic joy is the most difficult. In fact, I remember when I was practicing uh, the four Brahma Viharas in Burma. Uh, under the guidance of Saira Upandita. At one point, when I was doing Sympathetic Joy, he, he gave me this exercise. He said, okay, imagine that you're in a room and there's somebody you really don't like in the room. And the rest of the people in the room are people you admire quite a bit. All of these people that you admire are heaping praise upon this person that you don't really like. <laughs> and then he said, how do you feel? <laughs> So that was my homework. (laughs) It's difficult. But here again, wisdom and compassion are like our doorways because really life is so fragile. All of us, we go up and we go down. And in a moment, circumstances can change drastically, radically. We all know that. And so when we see this person enjoying some happiness or good fortune or success, do we really begrudge them? Do we actually wish, may you have only suffering now and forevermore? It's unlikely. In truth, we're not generally cruel people, generally speaking. We don't really want to see people suffer. One of the difficulties with developing compassion is that it's hard to see suffering as suffering. You know, we see somebody's behavior and it's abhorrent to us, it hurts us, it frightens us. And it's difficult to actually take the time and create the space to see their behavior as a state of suffering for them. 
But were we able to do that, then compassion can more readily arise. So we're not generally cruel people. If we can remember, even in looking at someone's happiness, at their joy, the fragile nature of existence, we actually would wish them well. We wouldn't wish for somebody to to lose what they have. Sympathetic joy. When I was writing um, my first book, Loving Kindness, I would go around the uh, center, around IMS, when the staff um, all eats together, and and I'd, I'd go around every day and I'd say, does anybody have any sympathetic joy stories? You know, and nobody had any. <laughs> And also, it doesn't make for a very good story, you know. It's like, I was really, really jealous, and it felt horrible. And then one day, I felt okay, you know. It's, it's not that dramatic, uh, uh, you know, a telling. But the experience of it is, is wondrous. And I think we know that from the other side. We know what it's like to receive it. You know, if you think back to a time in your life when maybe something really good was happening for you, and how some people were so happy for you, and how other people, they might have tried to play the part, <laughs> you know, but they weren't really that happy for you, and how, how diminishing that feels. So, you know, go back to that first person who really was happy, and how much that, that liberated you to be free, to enjoy your own happiness. It's a very beautiful state. And just as compassion has us open to suffering, Sympathetic joy actually has us open to joy. We need both. We need to be able not just to look at the pain and difficulty in life and not just to look at the happiness in life as though life were just one thing. They really support one another. Sympathetic joy, like all of these practices, is a practice of generosity. And generosity needs to be born from a sense of inner abundance. If you feel cut off from a wellspring of happiness within, if you feel deprived, you will feel threatened and unable to to offer that, that sense of care, of delight. Generosity needs to be born from the feeling that we have something to give doesn't have to be material, but it's the worthiness of the offering of our energy, of our participation, of our care, of our, our paying attention. Many times, for example, when I, I teach metta, and we do the part about metta for the benefactor, people will say to me, well, you know, I chose the Dalai Lama as my benefactor, but what does he need me for, you know, like my measly little metta thing? You know, and I mean, he's the Dalai Lama, and he doesn't need my prayers. He doesn't need my wishing him well. And first of all, we don't know that. And second of all, what a feeling to have about the nature of our offering. To truly have sympathetic joy, just like to have metta, and just like to have compassion, means that we have to have that intrinsic respect for the power of the offering of our heart. And that is really essential. The last of the Brahma Viharas is the state of equanimity. And this is actually what gives stability and boundlessness to the other three. Equanimity doesn't mean indifference or callousness. It doesn't mean uh, withdrawal from life, which actually can be a subtle form of hostility. Equanimity means balance. It means wisdom. I often think of equanimity as the voice of wisdom. It's the articulation of wisdom. It says, things are as they are. And that I am not in control of the ultimate unfolding of life. Things are as they are. There's pleasure and pain. In this life, there's gain and loss, there's praise and blame, there's fame and disrepute. It's just how it is. And though we can and should wholeheartedly and completely wish for the happiness of somebody, it's like a blessing, really. You know, it's, 
it's the offering of our hearts, still we cannot make it so. That's why for metta to be a freely given gift without impatience, without demand, without expectation, without um, compromise, it needs to be based in equanimity, that we're not in control of how things are. Otherwise, it's, you know, may you be happy by tonight in the way I want you to be happy, or else I will pull back. Equanimity means balance. It's a spacious stillness of mind. It doesn't mean we don't see what's going on. It means we see what's going on very clearly without denial. And yet, we see it in perspective. The fruit of wisdom is peace. It's to see things as they are. There's coming and going. There's birth and death. There's arising and passing away. And there's that whole layer of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's just how it is. It's not that we don't care. But how much do we care? And how confused do we get? How bound do we get to the moment's condition? Some of you know, um, and I think Kamala mentioned last night that uh, Ramdas came for a visit yesterday. And we were seeing him up in the council house. And um, you know, Joseph and I have known him for a very long time, for 30 years or more. And um, it, was, you know, it was wonderful to see him. And, you know, and as you know, some years ago, he had a very severe stroke. And so he's still um, mostly in a wheelchair and has some difficulty speaking. And, and it was amazing because we spent some time together. And then it was time uh, for him to leave. And first, you know, he, got, he was in the wheelchair and wheeled to the edge of the stairs in the council house. And then he decided he was going to walk down the stairs. So someone had to help him out of the wheelchair. And then we disassembled his wheelchair. And somebody was helping him step by step by slow step down. Then, you know, and then he got to the bottom. Someone else had to hold him up while someone else reassembled the wheelchair. And we got him back in the wheelchair and almost dropped him. But, you know... He made it into the wheelchair and then wheeled him over to the car. And then he had to like hoist himself out of the wheelchair to get into the car. And I was feeling just, you know, I went from bad to worse, like watching this whole production. I just felt so badly that this was, you know, the state that he was suffering. And, and I was standing right in front of him as he was hoisting himself into the car. So he's fully upright and he looks at me. And he's completely radiant and gave me a beautiful smile and said, you know, None of this makes any difference. And I thought, all right. <laughs> you know, there's equanimity. <laughs> it's not not caring, but it's being in touch with something more fundamental, which is the truth of things, and being at peace with that, rather than going so wildly up, up and down all of the time, based on changing conditions. Because we can never control those conditions. It's really too bad, you know, because we're really good at that. <laughs> I mean, if only we could kind of make it all okay for a day, you know, like a totally stagnant day where nothing's going to change except as we deem it so. It would be easier. I mean, I remember once I went to uh, one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, Sukhni Rinpoche, I was talking about a friend of mine who was undergoing really grave um, depression and unhappiness in a way that seemed it was never ending. And I was, I was talking to this teacher about it, and at one point I said to him, you know what really um, I find difficult is that I said, why can't we just be given one person in life where we could make all their suffering go away? Like just one, you know, where we could say, poof, <laughs> it's gone. And, and Sukhani Rinpoche looked at me and said, well, that's samsara, isn't it? You know, that's the nature of existence. That's the nature of this world. We don't get one. Even ourselves, just to say, gone, <laughs> you know, it's not like that. Everything we experience is born out of conditions. That's the nature of things. 
If we change the conditions, the effect will change. But it's not a question of control or dominion or command. And we need to accept that. It doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean being complacent. It doesn't mean not trying. It means trying wholeheartedly, but with understanding. Then we don't burn out. Then we don't feel bitter. Then we don't feel aggrieved when we don't get what we want. Then we can persevere. That's how energy gets sustained. That's how trying gets sustained. That's how service gets sustained, because we have balance of mind. Otherwise, it's too hard. We go up and we go down all the time. We get what we want and we don't. We perform a beautiful act of generosity and somebody thanks us and then they're not. So what does that mean in terms of our action, in terms of our lives? Equanimity is said to make the other three Brahma-viharas boundless, as I said. It's said to endow metta or loving-kindness with patience. It's said to endow compassion with courage, because it's not easy to genuinely open to suffering. We need some balance of mind behind that. And it's said to make sympathetic joy even possible, because otherwise the, the band of people or the range of people, of beings, that we would feel sympathetic joy for would be very small. Maybe two, you know. But to have a sense of the vastness of life and, and the bigness of conditions and the fact that everything constantly changes, that's what allows us to have that generosity of the heart towards so many more beings. From the Buddhist perspective, you might say that action, the activities that we do, can be divided into three aspects. The first aspect is the intention or motivation that gives rise to the action. And this is considered very crucial. This is really the energetic component of the action. So that, for example, um, the very same action or activity can be done from many, many different motivations or intentions, and it will, in effect, be a different action. And if I had um, a book here, and I wanted to give it to one of you, all anybody would see would be my hand moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward. But that action of giving could come from so many different places within me, so many different heart spaces. You know, it might be that I'm giving you this book because you have a book I want, and I think, well, you know, I'll give you this book and maybe you'll give me that book. Or um, I might be giving you the book because here I am in front of a room full of people, and I think, well, everyone's going to think I'm a really generous person if I do this, this publicly. That's great. Or maybe I'm giving you the book because I like you and I want you to have the book. There's so many different places within. It's really a different action even though on one level it's the same, my hand moving down, moving an object forward. So the intention is said to be the karmic seed. That's where the juice of the action really is. That's what differentiates one action from another, is the intention or motivation. The second aspect could be described as the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the action. This is based on uh, what's called clear comprehension. It's based on a very wide kind of mindfulness, trying to understand the conditions in place as best as possible. It comes from listening to feedback. It comes from learning. It comes from being sensitive to one's environment. So I might, for example, out of a very beautiful motivation, want to give one of you my imaginary book, And then I might well stop and think, well, you know, it's only one book. Here I am in a room full of people. Maybe it would be better to do this privately. Maybe it would be better to do it accompanied by a certain kind of note. I mean, there are all kinds of considerations. 
in place about the skillfulness of the action. And so we do the best we can and keep learning. The realm of motivation or intention is something we learn to be more and more in touch with through mindfulness, and it's also something we transmute through the practice of loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. The more we do those practices, the more our, our base or our field of motivation changes so that if in general we are moving in the world, we are acting in the world based on fear, separation, distress, anger, and so on, in general, the home will be one of, of loving kindness, of compassion and sympathetic joy. And so more and more of our actions will be based in that motivation. But the motivation doesn't dictate a certain kind of action. People often have that fear, and they say that about loving-kindness practice. Well, you know, if I develop a loving heart, then I will necessarily let people hurt me, and I will just smile, and I won't do anything about it, or I will let other people be hurt, or or situations in the world degenerate, and I won't do anything about it, because after all, I'm practicing love. And the motivation doesn't determine the exact action. Our insight, our our mindfulness, our sensitivity determines the action. Where it's coming from is, is what is transformed in those practices. So both the, the field of motivation and the skillfulness and unskillfulness of, of how we act are places where we're cons- consistently learning and changing and growing. The third aspect of the action is what we might call the immediate result of the action, especially in terms of praise and blame. First, it's the immediate result in terms of what concrete uh, consequence we see in front of us. You know, we do a certain thing, it seems to have a certain result, we might think that's the end of the story, but really it's not the end of the story. That could be the beginning of the story. Because what we do ripples out in ways that are uh, amazing sometimes. We might be in despair and we think, well, I did this, I tried, it did nothing. But actually, what seems like nothing today, maybe a long time from now, will prove to have grown and developed and evolved and had some influence or effect. We don't know. I once decided I would try to write a book called Basically Clueless, you know, because I decided we actually don't know very much. And this is one of the places where we don't. And very much so because we tend to determine the worthiness or the goodness of our action on the response of praise or blame that we get. And here is where we need equanimity again. To realize that, as the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world for everybody. There is nobody who goes through life only receiving praise and no blame. And it's quite interesting. I think sometimes the most interesting experiences are the ones where the same action can bring quite a bit of praise and quite a bit of blame from different people. I told one of the groups here the story about how um, somebody had asked about bowing. And, uh, you know, I said that in Asia, where uh, most of us were trained in our meditation practice, A Buddha image, for example, is not an art object. It's a sacred figure. And so you don't treat it, you know, here, and like, you know, people sling their hats over it and all kinds of things. But, you know, I mean, you treat the Buddha image with a great deal of respect um, because it also implies something about yourself. You know, when we bow to a Buddha image, it's not bowing to a far-off figure thinking it has nothing to do with us or that we are lowly and, and he is great, but rather we bow to the Buddha image as a reminder of that potential um, for awakening that exists. You know, so it is an Asian custom that most of us got quite used to living in Asia. You're always kind of bowing to somebody or something. Um, and I remember at IMS, uh, at our center, we mostly didn't bow to the Buddha images. Um, in fact, we had great debates in the beginning about whether we should even have Buddha images around. 
And we finally decided that, you know, we would, and uh, we treated them pretty casually. And then one day, one of the teachers who'd been on a recent trip to Thailand decided that he wanted to bow to the Buddha statue. So he came into the meditation hall, bowed to the Buddha statue, sat, led the sitting, rang the bell. He got to the bulletin board, which is about the distance of here to that bulletin board, and there were already notes waiting for him. So he pulled the first note off the board, and it said, I was really happy to see you bow to the Buddha statue because that kind of practice means something to me, and you know, I felt like you were giving me permission to do it too. The second note he pulled off the board said, I was really appalled to see you bow to the Buddha statue because you know, that might be fine in Asia. It doesn't mean anything here. And you know, it creates the wrong impression, and it was a really terrible thing you did. It was like 30 seconds, you know, like less than a minute after the action. Somebody felt one way, somebody else felt another way. And it's not that I think we need to discount all that, you know, and never listen. But at what point do we cease to have a sense of integrity within? Do we forget who we are, what we care about, what our values are, what motivated us? Are we simply going up and down and up and down and up and down? Because if we are, it's endless. You know, we will never have a sense of peace in what we do. Because there's always blame in this world, no matter what happens. So here we have equanimity. We transform our field of motivation uh, through metta, through compassion, through sympathetic joy. We make our home in those qualities. We act the best that we can in this moment in response to those motivations with as clear a vision as we can to what the best thing might be to do. And we actually practice peace of mind which is wisdom, to see what we cannot control and how we we needn't be distraught constantly over things that will constantly change. And that's the way our good-heartedness, so to speak, can be sustained. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.